0: Welcome to A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Rector of Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California, and your host. With this first episode in a forum series, Back to Basics, I engage members of the congregation in a lively conversation about the Jewish and Greek roots of Christianity and some of the essential foundations of our faith traditions and practices. So good morning again. I'm um, sort of piecing things together here, so bear with me. Um, we are going to uh, have this up as a podcast, so if you can make sure you have the microphone before you ask a question or have a comment, if you want it recorded. If you don't want to record it, don't pick up the microphone. Um, and if you want to edit it out later, just see me afterwards. All right? Yeah. Um, Before we talk about Jesus, I thought, I didn't do this, Um, one of the kids did, but sometimes it's fun to see what kids are doodling, because you know what's going on in their minds. Here's the church, wonderful, a dog, a cat, we love our pets in Mill Valley, but look at this, the clock, tick-tock, tick-tock, right, is one of the things we, we get in minds of scarcity about. All the time is time itself, right? So, this is kind of an insight into what's going on in our, in our neck of the woods, right? Um, I wanted to start today um, by actually asking you for questions that you want answered as we go through this forums. Um, Bill, could you pass out that sheet that's right next to you? Um, I've put together a little bit of a syllabus which takes us to the end of Lent. But this is very much a shot in the dark, so it's, uh, it's very fungible at this point, changeable. And uh, so we may restructure it based on your feedback and what you want to talk about and what you want to hear over uh, the next several weeks. So we're going to start there. All right. So what questions do you bring when we think about the basics of our faith and our tradition? What questions do you bring? Bill?
1: This question just really focused on it just this week because of the situation about the flags. And it has to do with the disparity between being a patriot and being a Christian. And I looked into it, and there's a lot of controversy about uh, things are quite different in your belief system if you're a national patriot with a flag on one side of the church or a a true Christian uh, on the other hand. And uh, I was arguing with somebody this morning at breakfast about it. I couldn't really come up with the right words uh, to even understand the difference, because there's a difference. So that's my question.
0: Great. I'm pondering that one. Great. And for those of you who weren't in on the conversation, we had a little bit of email conversation this week about the position of the flags in our worship space, um, and whether we could move them, whether we ought to move them, whether we might move them. Um, we're also talking about um, putting in some kind of memorial prayer station for those who've served the, the country and um, in the cause of freedom. And what does it mean to have a nationalist symbol in the house of prayer that, as our tradition says, is a house of prayer for all people, right? Yep.
1: One of the Catholic bishop arguments was that there shouldn't be an American flag in the church at all. Right. And that was very controversial.
0: Right. And there's there's, um, actually some history to this. Um, my liturgics professor at CDSB used to say there was a way in during, during the Great Wars that the flags were marched in procession um, during church because it was at a time of great nationalism. And there's a way that the flags were marched into church, but they were never marched out again. And so we have this as an additional element now in our worship space. And what does that mean? What does that not mean? So, you know, those are really tricky questions, actually, to answer. Um, Because as I've been speaking with members of the congregation, you know, as someone put it to me, that flag reminds me of the freedom we have to worship. Okay? Whereas other people see it as a highly nationalistic symbol, and, you know, Christianity is not a nationalistic faith. Even though, as we look at the history, and we'll probably have some opportunity to talk about this, it has been co-opted to be a nationalistic faith in many periods, not least of which um, at the time of our inception in the English Reformation. There was a way that Christianity was nationalized under Henry VIII and his successors where it hadn't been before. And so we have have a deep inheritance of that legacy. And what does that mean and what does that not mean? That's a great question. Thank you. Who else has a question they want addressed as we... Have these series of conversations, Joan? Can you take the mic.
2: Do people who don't know about Jesus get to go to heaven? Uh huh. Do people who don't necessarily? Believe in their heart on hearts about heaven and resurrection, do they get to go to heaven?
0: Good. That's a very old question. Yeah. And there are many different answers to that, right? Well, I hope the answer is yes. I would say in our tradition the answer is yes. But it hasn't always been the case. Well, you know, Christianity, right? all
2: these missionaries went out because they thought they had to save people and they created havoc and wrecked communities and, and all in the name of getting people to heaven.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the wars we've had.
0: So we'll have some time to talk about missionary activity and its history, both good and bad. Great. Other questions? David, Joan, can you pass the microphone along?
3: Um, Is it all right? Mine's more in the form of a comment. Um, Regarding the flags, I'm I'm almost speechless, which probably would have been better, but I guess my response to that would be um, Venezuela, Syria, Palestine, the Horn of Africa, and we're arguing about where to put the flag. That's Right. Right.
0: What's important and what isn't, right? And, you know, to just lift that up back to the 30,000-foot view, that's always been a point of discussion in Christianity. What's really important and what isn't? What's important in the life of the liturgy? What isn't?
3: What's important in the life of the Christian? And what isn't? And And just thinking about when when people who aren't a part of a church, you know, when, when they come to or they're curious about Christianity, perhaps, mm-hmm. and they come to explore, and they find people, you know, this is strictly my opinion, but, you know, they find people discussing where to put the flag, and, you know, as you said, whether or not it was better with 30 people because we didn't have to sit in a strange pew or something. <laughs> that's something right, outside. that's right. That's just my feeling. That's right, that's right. And that's
0: the habit of human community regardless, yeah. right? We, we tend to We tend to... It's also the habits I find in marriages, right? We, we argue about the oddest things. Like, where's the coffee pot going to be on the countertop, right? Where, whereas, you know, sometimes we lose sight of the important things. So, very good point. Yep. What's more important than where the coffee pot goes? Depends what time of day it is. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has a question that they want asked or answered? Can you get the
3: microphone?
1: Um, Should we speak out politically as Christians when we
3: have concerns? Uh Uh-huh.
0: Can I expand that question just a little bit? You certainly can. By rephrasing it as, you know, when are Christians called to engage the world of politics, right? Is that fair, Scott? Very fair. Okay. Uh, uh-huh.
2: Isn't there a policy handed down to the, uh, in the framework of our... Episcopal Church.
0: Uh-huh. So when does the church...
2: About bringing up political things within the...
0: Right. When does the church take political positions? And maybe it's not just when, but how. Right? Yeah. And in, in Christian, Christianity writ large, there's no single answer to this for sure. There are lots of ways this has happened.
2: But I thought that we did have it in our spelled out in yeah. our. Uh,
0: we'll talk about that when we talk about the founding of the Episcopal Church, for sure. And we do have ways we do this. But when and how is something that we're always, 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 always debating.
2: The Queen of England is is meant to be apolitical, but um, she's got really fed up with uh,
4: the Parliament and politics in the UK, particularly over Brexit and how people treat each other. And so um, she did
0: speak up and sort of gave a Christian approach to how people should respect each other. Um, It was pretty pointed. And what's interesting about her role in the English system is that she is also, she is also the governor of the church, yeah. right? She appoints, she appoints the highest officers of the church. And so that's an interesting interesting place that she holds. We don't have that here, but it is, it is a unique position for, for the Queen of England.
3: Yeah. Yeah, a
1: couple of questions that will probably produce opinions, but certainly no way we're ever going to come up with a true answer. One of them is, is what is our concept of life after death? What do we expect heaven to be like? Um, actually, that's the question.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Patricia said, I hope, we hope we're not disappointed. That's the...
4: Like I said, opinions, but <laughs> <laughs> So to get back to today's talk, um, in the interest of, of connecting all the dots with the things you're going through, I'll be interested to hear the um, strains of thought and belief in the early or pre-Jewish pre, um, tradition and also the Greek things that we should hang on to and... Um, you know, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, that's what I'll be interested to hear.
0: Yeah, this is a big subject, and and parts of it lie outside of my area of expertise, so I will do the best I can. But um, I can point you in the right direction if you want to learn more, too, so.
3: The other thing that struck me with the convergence of the Greek and the Jewish traditions is where how would you describe scripture? Um, The word of God, the word of God interpreted through the voice of prophets. Um, Is it to be considered a perfect text, an immutable text? Um. That's a
0: great question. And it's one of the classical questions of Christianity. And different traditions answer it in different ways. And we actually, in the Anglican tradition, have a pretty clear answer to that. So we'll get to that as as part of our um, discussion. It's It's a great question.
3: David? Um, Oh, I would be interested um, at the appropriate time to know some good resources for studying the Bible in the context of the Episcopal Church.
0: Resources for studying the Bible. Great. In the Episcopal Tradition. I will come back next time with some suggestions, precisely at that point. It's a great question. This gives us lots to work on. More questions? Friend.
4: When we say the Nicene Creed, I have to grind my teeth a little sometimes, uh-huh. every time we say Lord and Father. Uh-huh. And can you help me with that? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, we'll talk about where that language comes from, right? Um, And we'll talk a little bit about how that was understood in the fourth century. And certainly it has different connotations to us now. And in fact, that kind of language, that kind of patriarchal language, is something we're wrestling with right now in the Episcopal Church as we talk about where we're going next with the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and um, I could be very specific about that. Our last general convention, we just adopted for trial use, an expanded—we call it an expanded language version—of our three, three of our four primary Eucharistic prayers in the Book of Common Prayer. So it's language that expands the metaphors for God and um, moves away from strictly patriarchal language to talk about God and Christ. And uh, so we're just starting to really experiment with that. We have some prior experimentation to that in the Eucharistic prayer you heard today, which is from uh, resources that were written in the 1990s. And, um, for instance, it talks about uh, uh, God birthing creation out of the womb, the waters bursting forth from the womb, which is actually a biblical image, but a lesser-known one. So there's this kind of maternal image in that, in that moment of God. And it steers clear of some of the more patriarchal language we have in our older prayers. A little bit like Matthew Fox, right? Matthew Fox has really been working on this since, I think, the 1980s, right? And and really trying to expand um, our metaphorical universe to talk about God. But he's not doing that in a vacuum. In other words, he's not doing that outside of the tradition. He's actually remining the tradition for these images that are there, going all the way back to Genesis, actually. So, uh, just one minute.
1: Charlie? I'm wondering about um, the Word of God, in that today we heard about a cherubim, I guess, with six wings. So, to what uh, degree must we accept the supernatural mm-hmm. in um, accepting our Christian faith?
2: Right. <clears throat>
0: That is an amazing question. Okay. Cherubims and seraphims. Do you have to take a page out of Isaiah's book that when he saw that he thought he was done, because the ancients believed to look upon the face of God was to die, which is really interesting. Yeah.
2: Of lengths like Brenda, I have issues reading and understanding uh, Paul. Uh-huh. So I would really need help. Of uh, Paul is for me very misogynistic. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, I really always have trouble when it comes to Paul and what he says.
0: Very good. Um, and what's really interesting uh, with that question which we can touch on briefly today, is that there are actually layers in the Pauline letters. And I have a wonderful book to recommend to you. It's a very easy read um, by two New Testament scholars who really start to parse apart what they call uh, first Paul or authentic Paul. In other words, Paul himself writing. And then um, what they call... um, sort of the Pauline letters. These are letters attributed to Paul, but were probably written by some of his disciples in a subsequent generation. And then pseudo-Paul, false Paul, really, which which is probably written into the third and fourth generation beyond him, at a time when Roman culture was really influencing the development of the institutional church. And Roman culture was highly patriarchal. And um, and the reason for this is because if you look at all of the things attributed to Paul, he seems to contradict himself. You know, in in some of his early letters, he's honoring and respecting women and their place in Christian community, and there are stories about him encountering women, in um, in the Book of Acts, where he's you know he's he's very much working with them as equals. And in one of his authentic letters, he talks about women as being equals. And in Christ, there's no longer male and female. There's no longer Jew or Greek. But then you find other things attributed to Paul which say women should not speak in worship. Women should only have their heads covered in worship. Women should be mindful of their husbands. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but you, get, you know the drift, right? The things that really rankle us in an age where, where women are equal citizens. So I've got a great text for you on that. And we'll touch base briefly on that when we talk about how to look at the New Testament, the Christian writings. Is this enough to get started? Okay. I won't call this exhaustive, I promise. So if you have other questions that arise, particularly in the course of conversation, just raise your hand, speak up, don't hesitate. This is meant to be as much dialogue as anything. Okay? So I, I want to take 10 or 15 minutes just to go over a few things I wanted to say about the early strands of the tradition and then we'll have opportunity for more conversation um, stemming from what I share with you today and and things you may bring um, that you're aware of. This is just for fun. This is uh, a slide I put together um, actually almost ten years ago. But it's different images of Jesus coming out of very different eras of the church, very different parts of the church, This may be a familiar image to you all. This is this is a um, an enhancement of the image that that is uh, supposedly burned into the shroud of Turin. Um, I say supposedly if you if you've seen the scholarly research on that. The shroud of Turin was was probably made sometime when Jerry, thirteenth century. Um, but it is, it is such a hot spot for people who wish to go and pray and feel that they've grown close to Christ. It's, it's hard to overcome the myths and legends that have grown up around it, but this is, this is an enhancement of that image. Um, this is from something close to my heart. This is a Japanese image of the Madonna and Child, just to give you an idea. Uh, this is a very common image you'll find on the walls of American homes. Yeah? Um, uh, particularly in the Midwest where I grew up and in the South. Uh, this, this oil painting of Jesus. Jesus very much is a Northern European or even a European American with his long hair and his beard. Okay, um, This is, a, this is a, a beautiful image of Jesus laughing. I can't remember who the, uh, the painter is, but this is, this is fairly contemporary. This is, um, this is an image from indigenous Americans. Iconographer. Okay. Um, I believe this is the statue that is over, is it Rio? Rio de Janeiro? Yep. Um, And this is a mosaic um, which comes out of the Greek tradition. I think going back probably 6th or 7th century. This is an image of. Jesus' baptism. And I think this image is found, if memory serves, in some of the catacombs beneath Rome. Probably dates back to the 4th century. Okay, So Jesus has been interpreted in various different cultures in different ways. And he often picks up um, both, both the... the um, both the look of the people of that culture, if you will, and also many of the cultural elements, including clothing and expression. This, incidentally, is a reconstruction. I don't know if any of you saw um, the episode on PBS, I believe it was Nova, about what Jesus may have looked like. This is a reconstruction that is based on um, the remains of a first century person uh, found in the Holy Land. And um, it was done through uh, the same analysis the forensic investigators use to reconstruct bodies. And so we have the image of a man who is stocky, probably round-faced, round-skinned, maybe with a short beard, maybe not, certainly not with long hair which at least in the first century would have been considered way too effeminate for, for a, uh, a, a faithful Jew of the time. And um, the flattened nose, right? Not the Western or Northern European nose, for instance. So just things to think about. Marcus Borg says Jesus was 5 feet 1 and weighed 115 pounds. And that's probably true, given what we know about nutrition at the time. Yep. Yep. So he would not be the Jesus most of us would think about. And yet, are all of these Jesuses or images real to us? We'll get into this a little bit next week when we talk about who is Jesus which is one of the earliest questions for Christians. But I just want to start, you know, sort of sort of at the trunk if you will of the tree. We know and recognize Jesus as the central figure of our faith. His name is a Jewish name derived from Joshua or in Hebrew Yeshua, which literally means one who saves. He was not uniquely named in the 1st century. There were Lots of guys running around named Jesus in the first century. Okay, what we have a sense of from the very basis of our tradition and uh, the earliest texts is that he was a Galilean Jew, raised in Nazareth, and at some point in his adult life he began to confront both the Jewish religious authorities of his day, and also the Roman occupation. And he seemed to speak most ably to the peasants, his compatriots, people who were living at the margins of society, trying to eke out a living. They were mostly an agrarian people, uh, living in small towns and in the country in Galilee, and then further south. He also clearly spoke to fishermen and other people who were sort of on the margins of his society. One of the interesting things is that we also know now that in the Galilean area, around the Sea of Galilee, there was a lot of trade going on. So there was a lot of cross-fertilization, if you will, of ideas, and um, also a lot of encounters with different cultures. And the lingua franca of the time was not Hebrew. Jesus probably would have spoken up in the household speaking Aramaic, which was a street Hebrew. Um, But the lingua franca of the time wasn't Latin either. Sorry, Mel. If you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. It was probably Koine Greek, kind of a street Greek. And that was because of the influence of the empire that had been put together under Alexander the Great a few centuries prior, had spread Greek language and culture throughout the Mediterranean. So Jesus probably would have grown up, and given what we have in the tradition and what we know from the earliest texts, he probably grew up in a carpenter's household, which probably meant that Joseph, his father, was rubbing shoulders with a lot of other people in trade and probably would have spoken enough Greek at least to get by and trade with foreigners as well as uh, their local Jewish compatriots. We know that from rabbinical research, that is research done by Jewish scholars, that the Judaism that Jesus grew up with was probably fairly conservative for his time. It was deeply rooted in the Torah, first five books of the Bible, as we call it now, and in those early teachings about what we eat, how we comport ourselves, and who God is. The innovators of Jesus' day were what we see depicted in the Christian writings as the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were connected in some way, shape, or form with the powerful religious elites in Jerusalem who dominated the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish life while Jesus was growing up, and it's likely that he and his family, in fact we have accounts of this in the Gospels, made pilgrimage on a regular basis to to Jerusalem. Um, In fact, if they were attending closely to the law, they would have made at least an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. Jesus is remembered, we know, from the earliest strands of the tradition for his teachings. His teachings were very Jewish. They were rooted in Torah. And the language of his teaching is filled with language that comes right out of what we call now the Psalms, or Jewish hymns, that he probably picked up sung in the local synagogue in Nazareth, so much so they seem to kind of ooze out of his pores. And this is why to this day in our tradition, particularly in our daily office, but also in our Sunday liturgies, the Psalms are a central piece and a regular portion of what we do. Because that was true for Jesus, and it was also true for our Jewish ancestors in this set of traditions. We also know that Jesus was revered and regarded for his healing power, however that manifested. And of course, there are lots of debates. How much do we believe in the miracle stories? Going back to your question, Charlie, right? How much do we have to believe in the supernatural about these All all I can tell you for sure, this is is a typical Anglican answer, so we like to leave room for lots of different opinion. All I can tell you for sure is that the stories that we have received in the Gospels were written down because they were important to the early Christians. And they were important not because we thought they literally happened, but because they had meaning. They had meaning for the early early Jewish (coughs) Christian communities. And for the teachings they wanted to pass on and the stories they wanted to pass on to subsequent generations. We know that his earliest followers called Jesus Christos, or the Christ, which was Greek for the Anointed One. And in the Hebrew language, it would be Messiah, right? It was a term that came up through the Jewish scriptures and was translated into Christian community and carried forward. Finally, we know from very early on, his first followers witnessed Jesus' crucifixion at the hand of the Roman authorities in Jerusalem And with some extra-biblical historical sources, we can pretty much pinpoint that to, to somewhere in the fourth decade of the first century. Jesus was crucified. And that his first followers believed that somehow he had risen from the dead. And that there was an Easter experience that they found so transformative that his followers, who were at great risk to their own lives, were out on the streets proclaiming that he was the Messiah, even after that event. And that his first followers really had two things that were fundamental to say, and we still say them to this day. They would say, in some way, shape, or form, Christ is risen, And Jesus is Lord. Okay? Which said all kinds of different things in different contexts. In the Jewish context, this said that Jesus is somehow equated with Yahweh, God. In the Roman context, this would say, Jesus is Lord, so the emperor is not. That's the sort of language that could get you killed. In sort of the ordinary, everyday context, it would say, this is my pater Jesus is my patriarch, which radically undid the traditional structures of the first century Roman household. And so you see all kinds of wild things starting to happen. You see young women breaking off their engagements because they're baptized. You see entire families being baptized and turning over the order of their households because their slaves are baptized right next to them in Christian community. You see women actually moving into positions of authority in the early church. Um, particularly free women in the Roman context, women who had means, many of them were widows, would open up their households and host the Christian community. And in some cases even transform portions of their households into households of faith for the wider Christian community. And this is just, these are just small snippets of what we know about the early church. But if you if you want to think about early Christians go no further than these two statements. Does that make sense? So what did early Christianity look like? Well, I've just touched on that a little bit, but the first thing that we need to know is that early Christians really thought very seriously and deeply. Oops. we can get a handle on what he's trying to do here. All right, so it's not wanting to cooperate. There we go. Um, Early Christians were very focused on what they called the way, the way of Jesus. And the way was not just a set of teachings or beliefs. It was a way of being in the world. And it was a way of conversion. And sometimes that conversion was quite radical. We know in a number of early Christian communities, soldiers had to stop being soldiers. They had to set down the ways of violence. Um, Tax collectors, we know, are heavily emphasized in the Gospels, and so we think, probably, one of the early questions was, could people who were collecting taxes for the empire be faithful Christians? Probably different communities answered that differently. But the long and the short of it was, in most Christian communities, there was a long period in which people who wanted to be Christian were taught in a separate room of the building where the Christian community would gather. And they would often gather for what we call now the liturgy of the word, where scripture would be proclaimed and studied and talked about. And then before the people would pray together, those who were not yet baptized would be taken off into a different part of the building where they would be taught. And those who were baptized would remain together, they would pray together, and then they would do some form of what we would call the Eucharistic feast or tradition. And in this fashion, over time, people would become steeped in the way until they were ready to make a profession of faith, and that always involved the action of baptism. This is an early baptistry. And there are a couple of things to say about it. First of all, it's probably a converted Roman bath. Not everybody had one of these in their household, right? It's not like today. So this probably was in somebody's wealthy home. Okay? And the water probably flowed through here because um, moving waters were considered to have healing properties um, in the first century and also it would have had a sense of spirit to it, spirituality. The other interesting thing to note, of course, is that this is a cruciform bath. What we often think of as the cross being a uniquely Christian symbol actually is a little bit of our own myth. We know that this cruciform, particularly this equilateral cross, is a spiritual symbol that predates Christianity. And it has something to do with the movement of the seasons. And it has something to do with the way in which divine power works in our lives. And it is a symbol that is not unique to the Middle East either. If any of you have ever been to East Asia or to India, we see versions of the Equilateral Cross in a lot of Buddhist imagery as well. Right? Have you seen this in Buddhist art? Unfortunately, this was co-opted in the last century by uh, Nazi Germany. And it was reversed and, you know, um, just as a brief aside, one of the brilliant things, and I don't mean that in a good way, about Adolf Hitler is that he understood symbolism and imagery very well. He was an artist. And so he had, a, he had a big hand to play in the reversal of this image and then angling it um, as a symbol of power. And he was digging very deep, actually, into spiritual traditions that went back to the East um, that used this symbol as a symbol of unfolding spiritual power in our lives. So it's unfortunate it got co-opted by something as, as horrific as um, fascism in the middle of the 20th century. But this equilateral cross, we find everywhere. We have a version of it um, in the Celtic cross, up here. And that symbol actually originates with pre-Christian traditions, pagan traditions. Um, If you look behind you at the baptistry, that symbol of the circle with the cross in it has a number of origins in both Greek culture and in pre-Christian British culture. And um, in some forms, it's a symbol of the earth, symbol of the giver of life. So we know that the early Christians adopted this as a primary sense of spirituality. And what's interesting is that this image of four Um, also seems to have made its way into the scriptural canon. And some um, people who study both the ancient church and ancient spirituality and contemporary spirituality talk about this may be why we have four Gospels, um, because of this this fourfold symbol. Anyway, this is as I said, a bath converted into a baptistry and the the newly baptized would probably strip to their skivvies, if not be just buck naked, and they would step down into the moving waters and be baptized into the faith. And then as they came out, they would be given a white robe and they would be clothed in their baptismal garment, which would mark them as newborn, newborn in Christian community. And there was a radical sense in which they had left their old life behind and they had embraced a new life. We also know that the early Christians practiced table fellowship. This is probably a little bit too late to call it early. This is found in one of the catacombs under Rome. Um, But it mentions in Latin the agape meal right here. What's interesting about this image is that we have adults and children together, and the person who's presenting the common cup is a woman, right? So, we know that from very early on, Christians were gathering together in table fellowship, probably recapitulating something that they inherited in the tradition from what Jesus was doing. And we also know that there were probably two things going on. There were these agape feasts or meals, and then there was a more ritualized element to this, which may have come at the end of the agape meal or as part of the agape meal or separate from the agape meal and had multiple roots. Some of it went back to Jewish roots, uh, something that uh, even current rabbinical tradition practices called the Kiddush, which was um, actually a recapitulation of the temple sacrifice. And it involved a blessing and then the elevation of bread and it is broken and then shared. Okay? We also know that in the Shabbat or Sabbath tradition, part of the Sabbath meal involved the sharing of a common cup, which was passed around. If you've ever been to a Shabbat meal in contemporary Judaism, that would sound familiar to you. So scholars are divided about whether the Eucharist originated with a Seder, which was a very highly ritualized meal focused on the Passover, or whether it was a regular part of the Sabbath tradition that Jesus practiced with his disciples. It would have been very Jewish. The third element is possibly Greek feasts which were held to honor various deities, one of them being Dionysus, or I think in Roman terms correctly if I get this wrong, Bacchus, right? The god of the harvest and of wine and of party, you know? And um, it's possible that uh, Greek-speaking Christians in particular co-opted that tradition and brought that or ported that into what they were inheriting from their Jewish brothers and sisters by way of communion. So that's enough to get us started about kind of the baselines of the tradition. What questions do you have to follow up at this point?
2: I have two questions. Um, one is I don't know why we're discussing Greek in addition to um, Bethlehem side of it, the Jewish, the Jewish, the Jewish side. side of it, and were there other people claiming
0: to be the Messiah before Jesus? It's a very good question. So I'll answer the, the second one first, and the, and the short answer is, yes, we think so. I can't give you a whole lot more detail than that right off the top of my head, but um, I, I broadly speaking... We know that there were a number of people who rose and claimed to be the Messiah um, in the first century. Um, We also know that there were various groups that attempted to rebel against Roman oppression. And towards the end of the first century, then, there were were actually full-blooded Jewish uprisings against the Roman occupation of uh, what we now call the Holy Land, to the point that the Romans finally gave up. They finally gave up. And they said, we're done with you. And they destroyed the temple. They killed the temple priesthood. And um, they basically left Jerusalem in rubble. And uh, this happened around 70 AD. And what some scholars say is that that was such a radical moment in the life of ancient Judaism that, um, that that becomes the most important Important sort of turning point in the development of not only rabbinical Judaism but early Christianity. Um, We have very little in the Christian record from before that time um, except for some of the Pauline letters actually, some of the Pauline epistles. All of the gospels are written with the memory, perhaps living memory, of the destruction of the temple and what that meant. And what some scholars also suggest is that led to, then, a contest for the future of Judaism. Because with the temple gone, Judaism had to turn a corner in one way, shape, or form. And we know at that point that there were debates about whether whatever was left, probably very little of the temple priesthood, still had sway over the future of Judaism or whether the local synagogue communities and the local rabbinical tradition, which was still at that time very early in its form, the local rabbis who led the local synagogues would come to the fore. And in fact, they're the ones who won out. And then we have a sense, particularly from the Gospel of John, that there was a struggle in some quarters for even what we now call Christianity to assume the mantle of the future of Judaism. But our spiritual ancestors were such a minority that they didn't win that argument. And that's probably a key moment then for the separation of our two traditions, rabbinical Judaism and what later became separate, Christianity. All right, back to your first question. Thank you for asking that because that comes back to my main point, right? What does it mean that we have this almost love affair, as D.R. McCulloch calls it, between Judaism and the Greek-speaking world? So to put a little bit of flesh and detail on the bones, by the time of the first century and by the time of Jesus, we know that many people who were learned were learned in Greek. We know this is true of Paul. Why? Well, he wrote in Greek. Okay? And he went to one of the great universities of the first century in his time in Tarsus. And it's very clear from his writing that he was steeped in Greek rhetoric and literature. Why? Because he does all the things the other Greek philosophers and writers were doing, both before him and contemporaneously with him. He puts together vice lists and virtue lists. He puts together teachings and he uses these great rhetorical arcs in his writing that are just right out of Greek philosophy. We also know that other Jews that were contemporary with him or writing in the first century were very steeped in Greek philosophy. One of them was Philo of Alexandria, who is highly regarded um, in the Jewish tradition as one of the progenitors of contemporary rabbinical Judaism. And the other thing we know is that all of the authors of the Gospels were reading Hebrew scriptures, not in Hebrew, but in Greek, because a group of uh, rabbis had gotten together, a group of of learned uh, Jewish leaders had gotten together in the centuries prior to the first century, and they had translated their Hebrew scriptures into a Greek version known as the Septuagint, and in fact, that was the primary driver of the Bible as we had it until really the last century when we started to go back. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Let me back up. <laughs> really until um, the Protestant Reformation, when there was a real effort to get back to some of the Hebrew sources. And as we've been able to recover some of those from very early, um, we've uh, discovered that the translators of the Septuagint made some mistakes. You know. One of my favorites is found in the book of Matthew. Um, How many animals does Jesus ride when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? One. Some of you remember that in the book of Matthew, he seems to be riding two. Matthew has him riding on an adult donkey, and then there's a colt with them. And that has to do with the mistranslation in the Septuagint of a passage of Zechariah. So, you know, so the other thing that translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek did is it brought this very rich and abstract language into conversation with a tradition that had been very concrete. And that's because the ancestors of Judaism had been Bedouins, herdsmen, um, and probably lived out of tents. So their language was very concrete, very earthy, and what Greek brought them, in addition to all of the philosophy and the ideas, was a language that you could really abstract with. So you see, particularly, those first century Jewish philosophers who were steeped in Greek teaching and rhetoric playing with that. And you see the early Christian authors doing things like John does in the opening of the Gospel where he talks about the logos, the word. And he takes a Greek term with a very profound richness of meaning. It's not just the spoken word. It is like first principle. It is like the the sort of uh, creative spark, if you will. And uses it in a way that is both Jewish and puts out an olive branch then to the Greeks. The other thing that's going on, which is very concrete, is when Paul is out roaming the Roman Empire and making his awnings, that's what tent making means, by the way, in Scripture, awnings for businesses, and spending time in Corinth, Philippi, and other parts of the Mediterranean, He is talking, probably in Greek, to Gentiles who are gathered around the edges of the local synagogue, and they were called God-fearers, and they were intrigued God-fearers, and they were intrigued by this monotheistic tradition that came out of the eastern Mediterranean, And they were hearing Hebrew scripture, probably in Greek. And they could not become Jews. At least not easily. And Paul gives them an avenue and a new way of being in community. By bringing to them the gospel. So we have the intersection right there of the Greek world and the Hebrew world well because they weren't born into judaism and probably because either given their trade given their traditions or whatever they couldn't take on all of the kosher laws that would have been demanded of them and more than that they had to be circumcised and um, you know particularly the men obviously Um, and you know there were just a lot of barriers there and in fact, this becomes one of the early debates then in Christian community that Paul wades right into the middle of, which is, how Jewish do we have to be to be Christian?
1: Right?
0: Right? Other questions? Is that helpful, Joan? Well, so Greek culture and language was spread by Alexander the Great. What century was that, Jerry? 320 BC. Okay. And um, some of the texts that were being written in Judaism during and after that were written in Greek. That's how influential it was. So it wasn't wasn't about Greece as we know it today. It was about the spread of Greek culture throughout the Mediterranean. And, of course, that had a profound effect because it influenced that other culture that we like to talk about at the same time, that was the Romans, who always revered the Greeks and tried to model their their empire after, after the Greek ideal as they saw it.
4: Would there have been any intersection between, like, Platonic thought, like the idea of ideals, and the, the um, Jewish
0: philosophy? How would that have been? Short answer is yes. Yeah. Um, and and I'm, I haven't studied that extensively enough to really go into any detail, except to say that Platonic thought, and also Aristotelian thought, becomes highly influential not only for Christians as we get to the second, third, and fourth centuries, but also early rabbinical Judaism.
1: You know?
0: if, you think about, if you think about our two traditions, if we can talk about two traditions, it's probably more than that, but if you can think about them as siblings growing up out of this common root in the first century, you start to get the picture, and both are heavily influenced by Greek philosophy And um, that goes into everything. It goes into theology, it goes into how we structure and how we read texts, and it goes into how we structure our communities, and what are sort of our ideals around the human condition. And it also gives us some profound headaches, which we'll talk about next week. Yeah. I think we have to stop for today. Is this uh, helpful to get you started? Yeah. Um, I, I just, just for fun, I encourage you um, to get a hold of the Episcopal Handbook, the revised edition. It's a nice little primer on why we practice what we practice in the Episcopal Church. It's put out by Church Publishing. You can also get it for your Kindle. Or you can get it through um, Apple iBooks. And if you'd like a copy or if you'd like me to order a copy for you, just let me know. I'll take orders. The Episcopal Handbook. The Episcopal Handbook. Thank you all very much. Yeah. So, two weeks. Two weeks is when we'll meet again. Sorry about that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all for being here today. You'd like a book? Okay. Thanks for listening to this podcast of A Word from the Edge faith, religion, and spiritual community at the edge of secular culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, your host. We are a ministry of the Episcopal Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, California. Find our podcast feed over at iTunes, or in your favorite podcasting service, give us a rating, or go to our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org for more information about our spirituality, ministries, and service in the wider community. We wish you God's peace and we hope to greet you in person very soon.